We're starting a new series this week um, on the seven sayings of Jesus that he said from the cross. Uh, And today we're going to be looking at the first one of those in Luke. Just as you're turning over to that in your Bibles, it was a year ago this weekend that Angie and I first visited Cornerstone to see if this was where the Lord was calling us. Uh, And we both wanted to say thank you for your patience uh, in waiting for us, uh, as well as your very warm welcome. Uh, Many of you would also be aware that we bought a house recently uh, in Kingston, so you can't get rid of us now. Um, In the past 12 months or so, they've been extremely difficult, haven't they? All of us have suffered in some form or another due to the lockdowns, uh, exclusion uh, from travel, especially to see family or friends. And uh, I feel like it's especially important to acknowledge publicly uh, the hurt and the pain of those that have lost jobs or educational opportunities simply because they haven't been vaccinated. Significantly, the General Assembly of Australia, the Presbyterian Church, last year ruled that no one should be excluded from corporate worship simply due to their vaccination status. And in keeping with this decision, the decision here at Cornerstone, I think, has rightly decided that we should all seek to comply with the public health orders. And yet, at the same time, no one should be excluded on the basis of individual conscience. My brothers and sisters in Christ, there is a greater danger than COVID, and that is division. If our fellowship as believers is fractured, then can I say, I think we have succumbed to an even greater disease. As the mask mandates today are officially lifted, can I urge us all to renew our resolve to bear with one another in love? Let's seek the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. What's more, can I remind us all of our Christian responsibility and I know that the uh, session has already said this, but can I say it again? to not only pray for our governing authorities, but to give them respect and obedience. For the power behind the state is not Satan, but Christ. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2.13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. And then later on in verse 17, he says this, Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honour the king. And can I just say, this was at a time when Nero was on the throne. Finally, let us remember what we have in common and especially why we're here. We have the answer to sin and death itself. We have the good news of eternal life. 
So let us speak far more about Christ than of COVID. And may the Lord in his grace continue to bless our witness that more and more people would come to know him. The best is yet to come, friends. Not because Angie and I are here, (laughs) but because God is gracious and faithful. So let us continually realign our hearts to him. Before we read from God's word and hear his voice speak to us, let's join together in prayer, shall we? Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we come together as your people. And we want to confess that you are the true and living God. All other gods are but man-made idols. They are inventions of human imagination. Lord, as difficult as the past 12 months have been, we know that you have been loving and you have been faithful. As difficult as the months ahead may be, we know that you do not change and that you will use whatever circumstances come our way for your glory and our good. We pray that you would quieten our hearts and minds now as we sit at your feet and as we listen to your voice speaking to us through your word. Do that supernatural work of your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear and hearts that are willing to believe and obey. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke chapter 23, reading from verse 32 to verse 38. And brothers and sisters, this is God's word. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching. And the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God. The chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. 
One of the things I find really interesting is what different people have reported to have said as their final last words. I mean, there's the infamous Ned Kelly, who, as probably most of us would know, is reported to have said, I guess it has come to this, and then such is life. But then there have also been some more humorous examples, such as John Sedgwick, who was an American military leader. In response to the suggestion that from his fellow officers that maybe uh, he shouldn't show himself above the parapet in one particular battle, he said, nonsense, they couldn't hit an elephant from this distance. He never actually got to finish that thought. Well, then there's Oscar Wilde who said, the wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. One or the other of us has got to go. Steve Irwin, a.k.a. AKA the Crocodile Hunter, who is reported to have said, don't worry, they don't usually swim backwards. <laughs> this from a man who had handled all kinds of dangerous animals throughout his life. One of the most tragic set of words or last words I've read, though, were of Jane, Joan Crawford, who, after hearing her housekeeper begin to pray out loud for her, said, don't you dare ask God to help me. Those were her last words. That's just so, so sad on so many levels. Then there is Sir Thomas Scott, the famous atheist, who said, until now I thought there was no God or hell. Now I know there is both and I am doomed. Or even more intensely, the notorious atheist David Hume, who apparently said, I am in the flames. Meaning he could already feel the heat of God's just judgment, which he had spent his entire life denying and denouncing. Then there have been some really positive and inspiring examples, especially from Christian leaders. For instance, the great John Calvin said, this is his last words. I am abundantly satisfied since it is from thy hand. I think he was 56. Likewise, John Knox said to those around him, live in Christ, live in Christ, and the flesh need not fear death. And John Wesley said from his deathbed, the best of all, is God is with us. Farewell. Farewell. How different Christians speak on their deathbed to non-Christians. Just exactly what people say on their deathbed is a tremendous testimony as to what they believe and what they have lived their lives for, isn't it? I mean, it's in the end, as we peer into the prospect of eternity, that our real motives are laid bare. And that's exactly how it is with the Lord Jesus. There are seven statements that the Gospels record Jesus as saying while he was crucified on the cross. 
Each one of them points to a different aspect of what he had come to do. For it's these seven statements that really sum up the reason for why he came to earth. The one we're going to consider today is the one from Luke 23, verse 34. And it's where Jesus says, Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, if you take a look at your sermon outlines, you'll see that there are only two points that I would like to make. And that is, number one, forgiveness is the key. Number two, ignorance is the lock. Now, just because there are only two points today, please don't think that what I'm saying is simple. Well, it is simple in that it's easy, it's easy to understand, but it's not simple in that those two truths are the foundation for all of human existence. Forgiveness is the key. Ignorance is the lock. Carl Menninger, oh, Menninger a well-known psychiatrist of the last century, once said that, I'll, I'll put a quote here, if he could convince the patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, in his professional opinion, 75% of them could walk out the next day. That's not to minimise the organic nature of mental illness, but to illustrate just what a serious impact guilt has on our emotional well-being or mental health. Because unresolved guilt and shame can be just so crippling. One of my favourite passages in the Bible is the one that we had read a little earlier from Zechariah chapter 3. And wasn't it incredible? I mean, here is this figure called Joshua, which is the Hebrew translation for the name Jesus. And this Jesus Joshua figure is covered in filthy rags representing the sin of God's people. He is literally in Hebrew covered in excrement. Significantly, Satan is standing at his right side, ready to accuse him, but then this filthy, sin-stained rags are removed. And he is clothed in clean clothes, representing the gift of God's righteousness. And then the prophet Zechariah is told that all of these things that he is seeing is symbolic of the things which are to come. That in particular, there is going to one day come this messianic figure, this chosen one, this one where the other prophets will refer to as the Christ, but Zechariah refers to as the branch, who's connected to the vine, let the reader understand, who will remove the sin of this people in a single day. The day which we all know it's 2020 vision of hindsight, is Calvary. It's the cross. Where his perfect act of atonement was accomplished once 
and for all. And God willing, in a couple of weeks' time, the last saying that we're going to look at Easter Sunday is Jesus saying from the cross, it is finished. Not I am finished. It is finished. And that's also why he can say on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, this particular theme is so important that I'd like to take you this morning on a whirlwind tour of Luke's gospel. Uh, This is going to be a pretty ambitious goal on my part, so I'm going to really need you to stay with me as we flip our way through the Bible. But as we do, I hope that you will gain a greater clarity as to the reason why Christ came. Okay, if you have your Bibles there, Luke chapter 1, verse 76 and verse 77. If you don't have your Bibles, you can take notes and you can look these up later. Luke 1, 76, 77. This is where Zechariah, who was John the Baptist's father, prophesies about the ministry of his unborn son, the forerunner to the Christ. And he says this, And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. And then later, after John was born and grown up, we read in chapter 3, verse 3, he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Exactly as his earthly father had said. But notice here, Notice that John the Baptist's ministry is to prepare the way for who? The Lord, Yahweh. That God, as it says at the end of Malachi, is coming to his people. He is preparing the way for God. And when God comes, there will be forgiveness of sins. Significantly, in chapter 5, verse 8, straight after Peter witnesses a miraculous catch of fish, what does he say? This is chapter 5, verse 8. Peter doesn't say, as a professional fisherman, woohoo, we're rich. We've just, we've just got the most incredible load of it. That's it for fishing for the week. In fact, this is the prosperity gospel of why Jesus came. What does he say? Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. You see, not only did Peter recognize that he was in the presence of the Lord, but that just like Isaiah did when he came into the throne room of God, he was aware of his own sin. That in comparison to the holy God, He was unholy. And yet the significant thing is, is that the Lord Jesus tells Peter not to be afraid because from now on he will catch people for him. This is what's so tragic about the prosperity gospel is it misses the point. Then in the same chapter, there's the healing of the paralyzed man someone who had a much greater problem than not being able to walk. For the very first thing that Jesus says to him is, son, your sins are forgiven. 
By the way, the Pharisees understood the full implications of this because they complained that by Jesus saying this, he was blaspheming. Because only God can forgive sin. And yet to prove that this is precisely who Jesus is, he says, he tells this man, pick up your mat and walk. Not because that's the greatest miracle, but because forgive that points to the even greater miracle of forgiveness. What's even more incredible than the healing of the man paralyzed is that he's actually forgiven him of his sin. Then in chapter 7, we have the incident of the immoral woman who anointed Jesus' feet with oil or perfume, wet his feet with her tears, she was weeping so much, and then dried them with her own hair. Why would she lower herself to do all of that in contrast to Peter and the rest of the disciples who did nothing? Well, Jesus explains, he who has been forgiven little loves little. He who has been forgiven little loves little. In other words, the more you know that you are loved by God, the more you will love other people. If you can freely give yourselves to, well, you can only really free your, freely give yourself to others after you have first received that free forgiveness. And that's why this particular woman was so extravagant in her service and in her devotion. Because she knew how much she had been forgiven. A similar incident occurs in the very next chapter when uh, the unclean woman simply touches Jesus to be healed. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, then I think you'll really miss the full spiritual significance behind what she did. Because according to the book of Leviticus, whenever an unclean person touches something, whether it be a person or an object, they or it themselves become unclean. So by simply touching Jesus' robe, she is transferring all of her guilt, all of her uncleanness onto him. But rather than he himself becoming unclean, this woman is immediately cleansed. It's a powerful sign of not only physical healing, but of spiritual forgiveness. She has now been restored in fellowship amongst the people of God. Jesus has soaked up her sin. She has been cleansed. And we... And we just sort of assume this, but it's the really important point. And yet Jesus remains clean. Then there's the prayer of Jesus himself in verse 4 of chapter 11. Most of us know this off by heart, or we should. But I wonder how many of us appreciate the ramifications of what we're saying when we ask God in the Lord's Prayer to forgive us our sins just as we forgive those who sin against us. 
You ever think about those words and what Jesus is asking you to say or teaching us? Jesus is committing us to unequivocally extending the same forgiveness to others that we are asking for ourselves. Can I say, it is one of the most dangerous prayers to pray. Because what it's doing is it's making our own forgiveness from our own lips contingent upon how willing we are to forgive others. That's a dangerous prayer. Another powerful example of this theme is chapter 15, which we looked at last week. It's a series of three parables, all intended to rebuke our self-righteous inclination towards legalism. I think we're all recovering Pharisees. And if not right now, you soon will be. <laughs> because the temptation of looking down our religious noses on those who have been forgiven and forgetting that that is precisely what we ourselves have received is great. I know we're going really quickly, but let me just highlight two or three more. Luke chapter 18 contains the famous parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector of a man who could not even look up to heaven when he prayed, but simply said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Once again, it's a powerful rebuke to us religious types, especially when we start to think that we're saved by what we do rather than what Christ has done. Similarly, chapter 19, with the incident involving Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector who was wealthy, which means that he was a really, really, really big sinner. There was a statue in the first century, Josephus, the Jewish historian tells us, of one particular man who was a tax collector. And why they made a statue of him is because it said, here was an honest tax collector. It was so novel and so unique, we thought we should do a monument. But Jesus invites this chief tax collector who is wealthy, let the reader understand, he's a crook. He invites him to eat with him and by so doing restores him to fellowship with God. Which in response empowers him to pay back everything he's stolen. That's why he says, if the, I'll pay back four times the amount. That's just what the Old Testament said you should do. And he'll give half of everything he owns. Once again, we've got to realise this is how it always is when people are forgiven. He who loves much, who has been forgiven much, loves much. He who has been forgiven little, loves little. It's the only thing that truly gives you the power and the freedom to repent. Some people try to lift themselves up by their own spiritual bootlaces and think, if I can just repent hard enough, I'll be forgiven. Can I say you've got the cart before the horse? We must first come to God and ask for mercy and then receive his love and forgiveness to have any idea, any power, any ability to be able to repent. 
Jesus says in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 19, Today's salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. The final example then comes from chapter 24, and it's Jesus' final recorded words while he was here on earth. And he says this to his disciples just before he ascends into heaven. And notice once again just how important the theme of forgiveness actually is. I often tear my hair out at Christmas time, and you see on TV or in the print various church leaders saying, Why did Jesus come? There's only really one reason forgiveness. Nothing else. As important as secondary issues are, climate change, refugees, forgiveness. Starting at verse 45, he says, Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem, beginning with the Jews. You see, forgiveness was not some kind of, you know, side issue connected to the ministry of Jesus. It stood at the very centre. It is the key reason why he came. And if you've put your trust in Jesus, or I should say theologically, if God has given you the ability to have faith in him, then that's what you and I have received. Because even faith is a gift. We've been saved from God's wrath and all of our sins have been forgiven. Past, present, and as incredible as this sounds, even future. If forgiveness is the key, then ignorance is the lock. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus says back in, verse, uh, in Luke 23, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, not only are we all guilty, even if we acted in ignorance, but the really incredible thing is that the Lord uses that ignorance to unfold his sovereign plan of redemption. That's how sovereign he is. Let me give you just two specific examples from the book of Acts. Obviously, Luke wrote Acts as well as the gospel after his name. In fact, Luke wrote most of the New Testament, if you add up all the verses. Not Paul, Luke. Luke acts together, if you put all of those volume of words, he wrote the most, and they really should be read as two halves of one book. The only difference being that Luke's gospel focuses what Jesus did while he was here on earth, whereas the book of Acts is really shouldn't be called Acts of the Apostles because it's Acts of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus on what he continued to do while he was from heaven. Both books are really all about Jesus. One while he was here on earth, the other while he is up there in heaven, continuing to work on earth. In both books, it's the Lord Jesus who is the central figure. The first passage then is Acts chapter 3. Uh, I just want you to notice what Peter says in verses 17 to 20. Once again, not only is there a strong connection with forgiveness, you'll see, but God explicitly uses the ignorance of men 
to fulfill his own divine plan. Verse 17 of Acts chapter 3, Peter says, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would have to suffer, that the sin of the people would be removed in a, in a single day. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who he has appointed for you, even Jesus. See how the Lord's plan is never thwarted by human ignorance. It doesn't take away people's guilt, but neither does it prevent God's purposes. The other relevant passage in this regard is in chapter 13, verses 26 to 27. This time it's the Apostle Paul who's speaking and he says this. Brothers, children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning them, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Once again, notice how God uses man's ignorance to fulfill his divine purposes. Nothing can stop the Lord's sovereign plan of redemption. I once read an account of uh, an American man called Jacob de Shazer. I think I'm saying that right. De Shazer was a crew member of one of the bombers that made what was called the Doolittle Raid on Japan after the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor. His plane was shot down, though, and uh, he was imprisoned in Japan for over three years in brutal conditions. Uh, de Shazer was uh, himself often tortured and spent most of his time in solitary confinement. I think it's hard for us to really comprehend what our forefathers went through. At the time, he was not a believer. But towards the end of his time in solitary confinement, he was given a Bible which he read repeatedly cover to cover. And as a result, he came to faith in Christ and he received himself the forgiveness of sins. Not long after the war ended, Jeshazza became convinced that God was calling him to return to Japan and preach the gospel. He wanted to love his former enemies by sharing with them the message of God's mercy. So as part of his evangelistic ministry, Jesaza wrote a pamphlet which was called I Was a Prisoner of Japan. A million copies were printed. And as people all over Japan read the pamphlet, many heard the gospel for the first time. In the mysterious and wonderful providence of God, one of the men who read Jesaza's pamphlet was a man called, now I'm going to get this wrong, so excuse me, Mitsuso Fushida, who had been the lead pilot on the attack on Pearl Harbor, which brought America into the war. He was the very same man who gave the order to attack, Torah, 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 which means tiger, tiger, tiger. 
Fuchita saw the pamphlet at a railway station and at first he was inclined to discard it, but then he noticed that an American pilot wrote it and he thought, oh, I'll have a read of that. After he read the pamphlet, Fushida obtained a Bible and began to read it himself. And do you know the verse that changed his life? came from the Gospel of Luke, which you just read this morning. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And upon reading that verse, he was converted. And he came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what about you? Have you received the blessing of God's forgiveness? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus' death and resurrection? And if you have, are you extending the same mercy and forgiveness to others that you have received? Are you being like Christ, especially in this regard? Many of you would have heard of the Corrie ten Boom, who, along with her sister, was imprisoned and mistreated in a Nazi concentration camp. This is how she described it. She said, I had read a thousand times the story of Jesus' arrest. Soldiers had slapped him, laughed at him, flogged him. Now such happenings had faces and voices. Fridays, the recurrent humiliation of medical examination and inspection. We had to maintain our erect hands at side position as we filed slowly past a phalanx of grinning guards. How there could have been any pleasure in the sight of these stick thin legs and hunger bloated stomachs, I could not imagine. Nor could I see the necessity for the complete undressing. But it was one of these mornings while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that yet another page in the Bible leapt into life for me. He hung naked on the cross. If you'd grown up with crucifixes, they were nearly all wrong, not just because Jesus has risen, but because he was naked. They cast lots for his clothing. Ten Boom says, I had not known, I had not thought. The paintings, the carved crucifixes showed at least a scrap of cloth. But this I suddenly knew was the respect and reverence of the artist. But oh, at the time itself, on that other Friday morning, there had been no reverence. No more than I saw in the faces around us now. I leaned towards Betsy, her sister, ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blades stood out sharp and thin beneath her blue mottled skin. Betsy, they took his clothes too. Ahead of me, I heard a little gasp. Oh, Carrie, and I never thanked him. That's such a powerful and moving description, friends, coming from two very young women who knew what it was like to be tortured and humiliated. 
But the thing that is the most powerful element of it all was their deep appreciation for what Jesus had done for them. You see, you can either hold on to the bitterness and pain of what people have done to you, and it will make you bitter. Or you can come to Jesus and cling to what he's done for you on the cross, and it will make you better. That's the really incredible thing. I mean, if there were ever two people who had a right to be full of bitterness and anger towards God for how they were being treated, it was those two young girls. And yet they weren't. Indeed, their whole experience of suffering and persecution only drew them deeper into an understanding and gratitude for what Jesus had done for them. That didn't mean that they didn't feel the humiliation and pain of being abused. Years later, in the providence of God, Corrie ten Boom uh, came face to face with one of the guards who had tortured her and who had himself become a Christian. And while she forgave him from her own lips, she recounts that it was, it was not easy. But that's the unbelievable and transforming effect of the gospel, isn't it? That's what, that's what you and I, we all have in common. It's that we are forgiven. And it makes us treat people in ways that they do not deserve. Because through Christ, we no longer need to have the last word. We can let go of our bitterness and anger because we ourselves have been forgiven of so much more. So let's keep on extending to others the same mercy and grace that we have received. Let's forgive in the same measure that we have been forgiven. For that's what the Father is calling on us to do. Let's pray. Father, as we come before your throne of grace now, you know the pain and the anguish of every human heart in this room or watching online. You know perfectly how we have been sinned against, how deeply the scars have cut us. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for holding on to unforgiveness. Because as we look to the cross, Lord, we see that our price has been paid and paid in full. Lord, may we, like the woman that was forgiven so much, may we love much. May you give each and every one of us here this morning the grace to know how much we are loved in Christ, to know how great his act of atonement was for us on the cross, to know that in a single day he removed our filthy robes and has clothed us with the righteousness of Christ.
Lord, we are guilty and we are undeserving. We thank you for dying for us. We thank you for your gift of righteousness and of salvation. And we pray that we might always speak of Christ and his gospel with greater zeal, with greater freedom, and most of all, with true integrity. For we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.